Before we turn and read the scriptures, uh, just a few announcements. Uh, do them now instead of the end. Next Sunday, we do begin with small groups back. And also for those whose children are signed up for a communicants class, that begins to meet next Sunday night as well. Um, so you can still sign up for that if, you, if you'd like for your children. Also, just to remind you, uh, the one-year Bible ESV version is in the back. Uh, it's probably the most convenient way to read the Bible through in a year um, and most helpful way. We also have sheets if you want to use your own Bible. I guess you can do that. Um, we have sheets that will guide you through as well. Uh, but this is a very helpful tool, and uh, I'm actually going to... I've never used a one-year Bible to do that, but I'm going to this year. I'm being example. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, check me in January and I'll be hanging my head down. Oh, I'm sorry. Turn, please, in your uh, Bibles. If you have the Pew Bible, it's in 602, uh, page 602. Otherwise, Isaiah chapter 42. We've read this passage several times, and once more, we'll read verse 1 through verse 9. Again, the backdrop is a court scene in the last part of chapter 41 in which God sets the court and brings the false gods and idols into judgment. He brings the evidence against them and shows that they're no gods whatsoever. And it's rooted in the fact that they not only have not created everything, but therefore they cannot tell you what's coming down the pike. They are pointless, weakless. And he calls in verse 24 of that chapter, you describing them in the courtroom. This is like a public condemnation. You are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. That's what you are. That's the judgment against the false gods. You are absolutely nothing, less than nothing. Your work is nothing, and and it's an abomination if anyone follows you. And that's God's judgment upon anything that you or I might serve besides the living God. It's an abomination. An abomination that you or I or any human being made for the glory of God should spend themselves on anything else in life. Then the chapter ends, verse 29, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And he actually uses the word that describes the chaos of original creation, uh, the the earth, before God moved to uh, create the earth or to bring light out of darkness and order out of the chaos. So uh, to worship anything besides God is a devolution, a a catastrophic fall back into chaos and darkness. It's death and destruction and vanity. Then the contrast. Notice verse 29, behold, and then immediately behold, verse 42. So as we said the first week, there's this purposeful contrast between the vanity and darkness Of the false gods. And Yahweh himself now expressed through his servant. So the lordship of Yahweh. Here's the point. Is going to be brought to bear through his servant. 
So the contrast you see is not first and foremost with Yahweh. It's like, here are the false gods, my servant. That's striking. It's striking, almost blasphemous, that you would pit the false gods with the servant and not Yahweh. But it's because the, the servant expresses Yahweh. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Thus the word of God, let us pray. Bless, Lord, our hearts and lives to understand, to believe, and to live out your truth. Bless us that we may embrace you, Lord God. For we pray it in the name of the servant, Jesus Christ. Amen. This uh, passage divides uh, first four verses and then the last uh, five verses pretty nicely. So that the first four verses, you could entitle those as a justice and the servant. Because justice is the theme of those first four verses. It's repeated three times. So we're going to talk about justice there. And then the last five verses you could title as the servant and Yahweh, because the relationship of Yahweh and the servant comes to the fore. Although you, that's also uh, true in verse one as well, because there's this discussion of this relationship. But, but ju- uh, uh, the servant and justice and then the servant and Yahweh. Now, in terms of justice, two things you see that are said about justice, the extent of justice, that it goes to the coastlands, the uttermost part of the earth, justice to the nations. So the extent of justice, but also the certainty of justice in faithfulness, he says in verse three, he will faithfully for sure. There's no doubt about it that he will bring it forth. So the certainty of it. And it goes everywhere to the whole earth, the extent of it. Now, this justice is made up of three different things, and it's probably easiest to think of justice with three arrows. One going up, one going down, and one going sideways. Let's say it together. One, no. <laughs> all right. So, justice, first of all, has respect to what we believe about God. This is against the backdrop, you see, of the court scene. It is the just and right thing to declare Yahweh is God and nothing else is. So justice is established when the right thing is said about God. It is God, the Yahweh is God, the false gods are not. 
So justice is to declare what is God and, and what is not. Now, there, you got to bear in mind that when he talks in this passage, both the last uh, chapter and in this chapter, you pick it up in uh, verse 8, where he says, uh, or uh, verse 9, I declare the former things. The former things have come to pass. There's a huge deal about being able to say what's coming to pass. And we have to bear in mind, he's not talking about uh, God sitting there and the uh, false gods or, or, the, or the mediums or their priests sitting there trying to, you know, figure out the future. Sitting on the kind of the outside of the future and, and making a good educated guess as to what's going to happen. And God, he's just a little smarter than them and he can predict the future better than a false god. That's not the point here. The point is God makes the future. Okay? He's God. It's not his guesses. It's not, in, in the first place, his knowledge. Of course, it is his knowledge. It's his absolute sovereignty. He makes the future. He creates the future. And it's described in Scripture as declaring the future. So his word is not simply the word as we know it that declares promises of God. His word declares what is his word, we read in Job, by his word, the lightning strikes the mark. Okay? His word declares everything that is. I'm reading an interesting book by Vern Poitras, uh, a professor at Westminster Seminary, has his degree in uh, Ph.D. in math at Harvard, and he also has his theology degree. And he's writing this book about science, and, and he talks about this, that all the laws that we perceive and discover in this world are really a discovery of the word of God in another sense. It's his declaration as to how gravity is going to work. It's his declaration as to how uh, the atmosphere is going to work and how electricity, etc. It's his word. His word governs the world. So you see, it's in that sense that he is God. Yeah, he declares the future because he is God. He's sovereign over all things. He's made them and he can declare what's coming down the pike. He creates what's coming down the pike. He who created all things. So that's one sense of justice, the right declaration about God. But another sense of justice is his declaration of what is right for us to do. That's why many times this word mishpat, which is the word for judgment or justice here, is used in Psalm 119, for instance. And that that long psalm about the word of God. Well, among Torah, law and other, uh, ver, uh, I'm sorry, words for the Bible, we might say, is this word judgment. So it has the idea of God's declaration, God's decision as to what is right and what is wrong. But that's just another word for the Bible, his judgments, what is right and what is not. So that his laws expressive, perfectly express the right thing for us to do and to think. And that's why in this passage, it, it speaks about justice to the nations. This creates a beneficial order for the nation because the one who rules all is perfectly good and righteous. And when his word has its effect, 
in a nation or in a body of people like this, when his word has its effect in our lives, then righteousness will begin to prevail among us and justice. So his beneficial order begins to take place when that word is declared, which moves us to the third aspect. You can't really speak about his word being just without what happens sideways as well uh, toward one another. And this is said in a very interesting way in verse three, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now, we're going to do a little poetry lesson here. Just what you came for. There's a word called litities. Okay. L-I-T-O-T-E-S. How many people know what that is? Uh, one? <laughs> well, I didn't know either. No. <laughs> no. I, I, I had to review. I've, it's one of those things you learn like 12 times in your life and you keep forgetting. But litities is... Instead of saying something in the positive, you say it in the negative, and it forms a kind of understatement. Like we, the familiar thing, this is no small problem. Okay? You don't say, it's a big problem, it's no small problem. That's a litities. Or like, my, and, and here's a picture of the, uh, the understatement. My son-in-law has a ginormous truck. You know, it's like an 18-wheeler that somehow is fused into a pickup truck. Um, I, Kay learned years ago that these are called dualies because they have dual wheels in the back, you know. And she was asking this other friend of ours, uh, she was going to meet him at a rodeo and drop Anna Kate off. And she said, well, how will I know what you're in? He said, well, I'll be in a white dually. She said, what's a dually? And he described, he said, it's a good big white truck with double wheels. He says, it's like a big white truck with hips. And she was really overweight at the time. She says, oh, I'm a dually. I'm a white dually. <laughs> so if Bryson pulls up and this truck is shaking, you know, it's just rattling the windows, you know, just in awe of it. And you say, that is not a small truck. <laughs> OK, instead of saying it's a big truck or three guys are watching this drop dead, gorgeous woman walk in. And one of them turns to the other and say, you know, she's not ugly. See, that's the understatement. That makes the point. Yeah, that's an understatement. She's not ugly. Well, that gives you a feel for what he's doing here. To say he will not break a bruised reed. Well, you, or you say, was that all? He's not, well, you know, don't worry. He won't break you. But he doesn't say he's going to do anything for him. You see, it's an understatement. The point is... He's going to do unlimited good to the broken reed. He's going to devote unlimited, everlasting resources to those who are broken down. It's an understated way of saying it. He's not going to break a bruised reed. I'll say, duh. He's not going to snuff out a smoldering wheel. Oh, that's an understatement. Because he's going to do so much good to the broken. And you see, that's justice in its ultimate, rich, divine form. He does good. Even for people who don't deserve it and can't do anything for themselves, he does good for them. So, in the New Testament way of thinking, 
We're viewed as those bruised and broken by the fall. We've destroyed ourselves. We're like a sad alcoholic that you see walking down the street and you think, this guy, he may be my age, 55, and he looks like he's 85 and he's barely keeping himself alive. He's lost his family, his job. He has no relationships. And you're just, your heart breaks over what sin has done and what this world has done to this man. And that's the way the Lord looks upon us. And His justice in the first place here is not to destroy us. His justice is to save us. It's to rescue us. It's to do us good. So, the servant is bringing about faithfully, assuredly, certainly, and extensively this justice where God will be acknowledged as the Lord. His Word. Notice the statement in verse uh, 4. The coastlands wait for His law. NIV has, they hope for His law. The sense, as Oswald has said here, is that the nations are so convinced of the goodness and the glory of the servant, they embrace His law happily, joyfully, realizing the goodness and the sweetness and the benefit of that law. You see, this is why the old lordship uh, conflict that do you have to receive Him as Lord as well as Savior? It's ridiculous from the scriptural standpoint. You, you mean you would say, I'm not going to put myself under the comfort and blessing of His wisdom? What? I won't put myself under His guidance and His rule and His law and His direction, which is all for my benefit? No. Well, how can you even describe that as salvation? If you are robbed of the light of his word. No, what will happen? The coastlands will hope in his word. That's what happens when salvation comes. And when justice is exercised, it's exercised through the word. And people's relationships begin to heal and change because of justice. Marriages begin to change because of justice. We begin to also show justice and this kind of love to those around us. You can't, can't be touched by justice, this kind of righteousness, without wanting to impart it. So, what does he say later? That I give you, servant, verse 6, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So, this covenant that is rooted really back in Noah, where God made a covenant with the whole earth through Noah. And then the next covenant you hear of with Abraham, that was chapter 9, next covenant in, verse, in chapter 12, he makes with Abram and he says, your seed, now we think this servant is the seed, by the way, in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here is the final, this is the declaration that that covenant, which always had all the creation in view, now it's about to be let out of the cage. (laughs) Let it eat, we used to say. Let it go. Let it have its effect. Let it stretch to the outer coastlands. Let them experience the justice and righteousness of this glorious covenant. But I just want to take that one aspect And kind of build on briefly the last half when he says he will faithfully bring forth justice. It's because of his relationship with Yahweh, the servant in Yahweh. 
And in the second half, you have Yahweh. Uh, he's the Lord of creation. First verse. Verse. Uh, in fact, you can see the division. Verse five. God, the Lord. Verse six. I am the Lord. Verse eight. I am the Lord. It divides that second half into those three sections. Lord of creation. Lord of the servant. And then Lord of the gods, Lord of the idols is how that's divided up. But it's just a way to explore the amazing sovereignty and lordship of this this God. How powerful and effective will the servant be? Well, as he says in verse one, I uphold him. I grip him fast. Or as he says in verse uh Verse six, I'll take you by the hand and keep you. These are powerful words that he uses to describe what he will do for the servant. This is why the servant is so faithful. This is why the servant will do so much good, because he's my servant expressing my will and my love and my grace and my justice. This is God on the scene through his servant. And he has my spirit. My presence is with him. So in the old, uh, in the early centuries, there was a guy named Marcion that wanted to divide between the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament to such an extent that he cut up the New Testament and left off parts that seemed to have too much of the old God in them. Okay, Making up his own God and his own Bible in the process. You see, this this is death to that idea. Who is this servant that's going to express such kindness, such tenderness to the bruised weed and the faintly burning wick? He's my servant. He's not doing this in opposition to me. He's not having to win me to this. He's coming to express my tenderness, my love, my justice. So you see, it's that relationship that he has with Yahweh, that makes him faithful, that makes him have this character, that makes sure that justice is going to be extended to the whole earth. Why is that? Because verse five, he's the one who created the heavens. He uses four verbs here to describe what he did, created the heavens, stretched them out, spread out the earth, uh, what comes from it and gives breath to the people. Everything on the earth, everything that comes forth from the earth, everything that every person has, it's all from this God. And he upholds the servant. You know, there is no other game in town. No other game in town. This is it. The God who made all things, who upholds all things. This is his servant. He is devoted to him. He is devoted to his success, his salvation, his justice. The Lord of creation. And you see in verse, as we've seen in verse, excuse me, verse six. That this covenant is for the whole of the earth. It is, he is a light for the nations. And the important thing for you and me is that means you. Okay. This servant spoken of so many years ago is a servant that's given for you, for your justice, for your righteousness, for your salvation. So that in all of your brokenness, because you are broken whether you realize it or not. In fact, if you're fairly successful and you're doing everything pretty right, you're pretty organized, you're, you're just looking for another way to get your life together, 
then God becomes just a function for you to help me do things better in my life. Have my life more together than it was yesterday. Be more organized, more productive, more successful. Yeah, I could use a little more help like that. Of course, at root then for your problem, your your root problem is worse than any other problem. It's pride. That's the thing spoken against most in Scripture. That a human being would not realize everything you have is from me and you don't even begin to realize the fact how much you've sinned against me and despised me at heart. You have no idea of your own corruption. And yet you look down your nose at weak people. And the greatest weakness in the world is pride. Well, to that final word of pride and I end here verse 2 a fascinating statement made about this servant he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street you think well Jesus taught and he taught widely he taught large multitudes well it's not talking about well he won't teach publicly you know that's not the point this is poetic as well And it's a way of saying his ministry, his work will not be ostentatious. It will not be self-advertising. It will not be something that puts himself forth in, in a kind of exalted way, but that he'll come really in humility. And it really catches your breath because you think this This man, this this being who's coming has God himself at his right hand. He's the most exalted being spoken of in the Old Testament. So you think he's going to come, you know, with open kingship. And there's this little verse tucked away. He will not cry out aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He will not push himself in that way. Of course, Jesus pointed to himself as the only source of salvation. But Oswald puts it this way. He says, the answer to oppression and arrogance, which is, abounds with false gods, is not oppression and arrogance back. But he says this, rather, in quietness, humility and simplicity, he will take all of the evil into himself. And this refers later to Isaiah 53, where it says he will bear our sins. In other words, he will bear the oppression, the world's hatred. That's what happened to Jesus. The oppression and arrogance of the world was spent upon him. And it became in God's hands the very wrath of God poured out upon him. And you stand back and say, what? He not only didn't strike down the kings and the arrogance, he allowed the kings of the earth To put their arrogance and oppression and crush him in the most horrible death possible and the the utter degradation on the cross. And, And this was actually an expression of the wrath of God poured out on him. Boy, I should say he wouldn't cry out loud or lift up his voice. He was crushed, as it says in Isaiah 53, which is the last of the servant songs. This is the first of the four servant songs. And so the final servant song declares 
that he will be crushed for our iniquity. And here's what Oswald says. He will take this evil into himself and return only grace. That is power. That is power. He is the Lord. He comes to save. And he comes to stand in the place of sinners and die for them. I have a little thing I do with the kids using a towel to describe the Christmas story. And I use the towel to be all the characters, you know. I start off humorously, Mary, you know, with my little shawl over my head. Ugly, ugly, ugly Mary. Um, I become a shepherd, I become a king, and use this towel. So the towel, of course, all this time is not a towel. And then at the end, I say, and now, for the last thing, I'm going to use the towel as a towel. And I go to John 13, where Jesus puts the towel around him and becomes the servant of his disciples. And you know from this, the night before he was, the night of his betrayal, he's picturing for them his servanthood on the cross. Where he said, I, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the extent of his servanthood. Bloody servanthood. Life-giving servanthood. And I show, of course, how he, he served and washed their feet. And I washed their little... And it's so cute because the kids will kind of inch forward, you know, to get their feet out there so you can touch their feet to wash them. And I think, isn't that true of all of us? Don't we want to be washed? Don't we want to be cleansed? Don't we want to be healed? Don't we want God to come into our fractured, messed up lives and all the darkness and sin in us and come in and do some good? Bring righteousness to this poor brain. Bring forgiveness and cleansing and a conscience that's clean. Oh, bring it, Lord Jesus. This is his servant. But here's the amazing thing. He's a servant given for you to be your servant. Will you reject him? Some of you may be here just because you're visiting with friends or it's the new year and you're at church. I just, if you don't know this servant, will you not embrace him? So he'll be your servant. Don't pass him by. And here's God's commitment to do this. In verse 8. I'm the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. He wants to glorify his name by doing you good. Can you beat that? You know he's dedicated to his glory. The whole earth is going to be filled with his glory. And in his dedication to his glory, the way he wants to glorify himself is to do you good. By giving you his servant. And for those of us who are believers, will we not with Paul, as we prayed earlier in the pastoral prayer, say, I count everything as refuse for the sake of the knowledge of this servant. 
His is a landscape that you can explore forever. And everything that you find in Him is a benefit and a change for your life. May we give Him glory. May we give our lives to Him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for this precious servant given for our good. This one who so wonderfully expresses the grace and the glory of Yahweh Himself. This one who we read in the New Testament is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And because of His Lordship, He is able to do unlimited good in His people. He is able to save them from their sins. He is able to swallow up evil. He is able to bear their wrath. He is able to change them. He is able to bring about peace and joy into their lives. He is able to bring form and light out of chaos and darkness. Even as Paul, using that same analogy, said, He who said, let there be light, has shone in our hearts so that we could see the glory of Christ. Lord, would you shine in hearts this morning? You who created the world, will you recreate some hearts this morning that they will now, today, embrace this servant and say, Lord Jesus Christ, I trust you to save me from my sins, to save me from my guilt and condemnation that I deserve, and to save me from the practice and the power of my sinfulness. Lord, in every way, take me and change my life. Lord, we pray these things for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our last hymn will be, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, hymn number 30. I'd like for us, if you turn in your bulletins, though, to the prayer for a new year. Adopted from Valley of Vision, it's a collection of Puritan prayers. And uh, Jacob included this, and I thought it was so good for us to use this. So we will stand and pray this prayer together, and then immediately... Sing, O God, our help in ages past. What an appropriate hymn, right? Our God in ages past, our God in this past year and our whole life. Attend us now as we move into the future. Let us stand as we pray and then sing. Let us pray together. O love beyond compare, you are good when you give, when you take away, when the sun is shining. When night falls around me, your goodness has been with me during another year, leading me through this wilderness, and your goodness will be with me in the year ahead. I hoist sail and draw up anchor with you as the pilot of my future, as of my past. I bless you that you have veiled my eyes to the waters ahead. If you have appointed storms of tribulation, you will be with me in them. If I must pass through tempests of persecution and temptation, I shall not drown. If I am to die, I shall see your face the sooner. If a painful end is to be my lot, grant me grace that my faith fail not. 
only glorify yourself in me, whether in comfort or trial, as a chosen vessel prepared always for your service in the name of your precious son. Amen.